This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The following podcast contains explicit language. I'm Stephen Metcalf, and this is the Slate Culture Gap Fest Hot and Cold Running Sonnets Edition. It's Wednesday, September 16th, 2015. On today's show, You're the Worst is a single-camera anti-romantic comedy on the FX. X network. It's entering its second season, and some people believe it's the best show on TV. We checked it out. And then Stephen Colbert has dropped the facade and picked up the mantle. We discussed the new host of The Late Show. And finally, in an age of techno-futurism, what does it mean to be a Luddite? Is it the last preserve of the human, or should it be, as it seems to be, a term of abuse? Joining me today is Slate's editor, Julia Turner. Hello, Julia. Hi, Steve. And of course, Slate's film critic, Dana Stevens. Hey, Dana. Hey, Steve. I'm so happy that we're all here. It's been so long. Yeah, it's been a long and painful separation of many stages. There's been a lot of like montages of me staring out rain-streaked windows, <laughs> yearning for you guys across oceans. <laughs> Phil Collins composed a special <laughs> song for our separation montage. <laughs> so, so you mean to say that we haven't all done a show together in a long time? Yeah, that's what I'm saying. I hadn't noticed. Um, Okay, plainly, we must have some business, Julia. What is it? We do. We are still coming to Chicago next week. So our reunion will be quickly followed by a road trip. I'm so excited. I've never been to Chicago. We're performing live on Tuesday night at the Music Box Theater. So you can get tickets to that at slate.com slash culture chai. That's culture C-H-I. And we should note also two things about it. First of all, that means next week's show may post a little bit late. It will be up for your Wednesday evening dog walk, but maybe not your Wednesday morning dog walk. And Hefferman is going to hurry scurry it onto the airwaves as soon as possible. Also, one of our topics we can pre-announce, we will be discussing Black Mass, the Whitey Bulger movie starring Johnny Depp that comes out this week. Uh, So Chicagoans, Go see it if you want to have already seen it when we discuss it. Uh, And we're so excited to see everybody out there. And then also I should note that at Slate.com slash live, we have a host of awesome live events coming up, including uh, an event around our History of Slavery podcast in D.C. next week, a live gist, the first ever live gist spectacular is coming up in a few weeks in Brooklyn and plenty more rolling out. So slate.com slash culture chai for our show and slate.com slash live for all of our live events. All right, Steve, what's up first? Thanks, Julia. You're the worst, as I said, is a single camera anti-romantic comedy. I like that line so much, I guess I used it twice. You are the worst, Steve. <laughs> I love the double X FXX network. Does that mean it's even like pornier and more adult? I think so. I don't really know. I think they put all their... I I, I don't understand it. I don't understand it. I can't pretend to understand it. It's a new spinoff network, and I think it's trashier. I tried there. That was... I think that may have been the uh, adjective I was looking for. It stars Chris Gere as a Brit living in L.A. and Aya Cash as an Angelino PR executive. The show follows along as two quite self-consciously toxic personalities make possibly make a go of it in a committed relationship. Will they get past their heavily defended egos and take a real chance with one another? That's the premise. At least let's listen to a clip. Hey! Hey yourself, hunk face. What are you wearing? Just a little something fun and flirty. You like? Yeah, I bet you do. I thought we could do butt stuff tonight. Fantastic! Yeah, for sure. We don't have to, if you don't want to. I mean, I could be fine. Just... Of course I want to do butt stuff. In fact, I am so up for having another crazy night. 
I have prepared as well. Oh, look, you got a whole mess of cocaine. Oh, yeah, because you love cocaine, right? Yes, I do. <laughs> it's my shit. <laughs> cool, let's add cocaine to the butt stuff. All right, so in that clip from the premiere of season two, which just aired and is the occasion for our discussing this show, we find Gretchen and Jimmy cohabiting and partying like banshees known for partying because they are afraid that cohabiting will turn them into boring drones and extinguish their burning love for each other. And so this is night five or six of the debauch when they each feel compelled to up the ante and you can hear their desire to lie down and like read a boring book through their professed desire for cocaine and butt stuff. So that's that's where we find them now, but we've sampled a little bit from the, the first season, too. Steve, do you never start? What what did you make of this show? <laughs> oh, gosh. Um, the obvious comparison in one's mind while watching this is with Catastrophe, a show that we watched recently and ad- pretty much adored. And I, I really loved Catastrophe. And I guess there's no accounting for taste, right? That, that a show like Catastrophe or You're the Worst, is premised on really wanting to spend time with the two lead characters as they get to know each other, repel one another, fall in love with one another. I loved spending time with the two principals in Catastrophe. I dislike spending time to an almost allergic degree with the leads in um, You're the Worst. I cannot hang this on some completely neutral aesthetic principle or ironclad value judgment. It really isn't that. I will say that when I watched it, I did sense that there was a kind of malice of forethought to it in a way of the sitting around a conference table and saying, I know, we'll make a sitcom that's edgy. It'll be porny and ruthless. And we'll turn every cliche about the romantic comedy studiously on its head. And I think none of those things is really equatable with originality that this show, I think, thinks that it's an exhibition of. I hate to start out so negatively. I wanted to like it. I just found myself kind of worn down by this self-conscious toxicity of the characters, but I'm very curious to hear, Dana, what you thought. Wow, I completely disagree. And to my own surprise, this this show kind of stole my heart. But that's a completely different ballgame from this show. And probably it's probably I would say Catastrophe is a show with more more substance and more kind of heart than than You're the Worst, which is really just poppable candy in a jar. Although um, we should also say that by completely different ballgame, you mean another show about two uncoupleable people who, in the wake of a <laughs> flaming hot one-night stand, <laughs> develop an unlikely bond that persists against their better judgment <laughs> in a short, quirky, limited series All right, on touche, an alternative touche, network. Touche. <laughs> and, and there you've brought me to the reason I had such a resistance to, to You're the Worst was that when it came along, I thought, really? Another show set in L.A. that satirizes entertainment types and, you know, is about young white people coupling and uncoupling. And there's just really no way that this is going to get over that hurdle of there being so many shows that, that fit that description. And uh, I won't say that this show completely reversed those expectations and was the most sort of wildly original thing I had ever seen. But I think that what it does with that formula is very smart, very pleasing, extremely well-written, extremely well-cast, and is essentially just like a jar of tart gummy bears, that very tart gummy bears that you can't stop popping into your mouth. And by way of demonstration, I was going to watch a little bit of this to prep for the second season, which is, I guess, the occasion for our conversation. And I wound up watching the entire first season, all 10 episodes in a day. They're only 20 minutes long. And uh, as I think I've said before on the show, I like this kind of comedy. I like little sweet, self-contained comedies. And in spite of the apparently extremely antipathetic nature of these two characters, there's no getting around the fact that this show is, at at its core, extremely sweet, right? I mean, it really is about these two people and the guy's roommate and the girl's best friend becoming this sort of Seinfeld-like foursome that sort of treat each other and the world horribly and yet need each other. Yeah, there is sweetness under their armor, and the heart of the show is a quest for sweetness and almost a rallying cry of like even thorny hard-shelled people are sweet too it's there's like a little bit of a um we are the worst instead of you're the worst to it there's a sense of like we deserve our own romantic comedies and our own quests for love which is slightly novel i feel slightly hamstrung by i watched the first two episodes of the first season and then the premiere of the second season and i you know, found the performances winning, found myself beginning to get caught up. But at least the first couple of episodes felt 
I could hear a different, slightly less cynical version of the writer's room conversation going into it. Like there's a there's a recurring motif in the second episode where Jimmy and his roommate watch Ferris Bueller's Day Off and they have a debate about who's the villain. And they debate whether or not it's Cameron, whether Cameron is the sidekick or Cameron is the villain because he's waging a war on fun. And eventually Jimmy and Gretchen unite in their disdain for the lugubrious Cameron. And there's like this whole kind of English class riff about the different types in the literary structure. Like all of that could just be character of the Jimmy, the writer character being a pompous twit. But you kind of sense that the creator is playing with those types in a self-conscious way. And I could not decide from the first couple episodes whether that would begin to unspool in a less self-conscious and more sophisticated way as season one went on or whether it would just get like more choked up in its own self-satisfaction about having interesting things to say about the nature of evil. But Dana, it sounds like you think it did not. Do you think that you think I should keep watching? I don't know that it's trying to say anything about the nature of evil because I think the evil of these two characters is is essentially a, a, a sham and a facade that they're putting up to sort of, you know, hide the, the teddy bear inside. The show that it made me think of, something else we talked about on the show before, was Unreal, the fake backstage at a reality show drama that, Julia, I think you got addicted to and ended up watching the whole first I season, did. right? I did. And, uh, and that show is clearly more substantial than this one. It's asking more questions about entertainment and the entertainment industry and what it is to treat people well and what it is to treat people horribly and what it is to be a good person. I don't think that You're the Worst, for all of its very flagrant awfulness, is really digging that deep for those questions. I think it is just sort of a brightly colored and, uh, and ultimately somewhat sweet-spirited sitcom. But it feels to me like it is asking, like, genre questions, and it's playing with questions about how romantic comedies tick and what kinds of characters find love and which ones don't and how they do it, and it seems like it has abstract notions behind it, uh, even if they're not about the nature of evil. There's, like, a lot of complicated machinery ticking behind this thing, and that seemed apparent to me in the first couple episodes, and I couldn't decide whether I thought it was going to turn into a seamless symphony or remain a little clunk, clunk, clunky. This is where I think this show would gain real traction for me. Um, He's a writer who's come out with a, it sounds like kind of aspirationally literary book that has sold zero copies and is now quote unquote forced to do uh, magazine work that he doesn't really care about. She's a PR executive, you know, whose job is it it is to placate uh, narcissistic talent and uh, tell public lies on their behalf. There's a reason why these people have um, highly developed toxic interpersonal exoskeletons. And I think it's interesting to think about the kind of history of the sitcom of the irredeemably nasty group of friends that began with Seinfeld. Seinfeld started when people were becoming conscious of, you know, we now all live in a kind of market-driven world. We're all horribly selfish. We just should give into it. And we should give up. It was like, you know, in some ways, a deeply nihilistic show. In some ways, we should give up on all of these pretend emotions that that burden us and just admit that we're ultimately totally 100% self-serving creatures. And that show really never broke facade. Uh, during the course of its run. Where are we now that that's being turned on its head a little bit? There's this admission that your public self is by necessity that, but is completely out of whack with your private self. I would say that the kind of turn that the country took culturally and economically in the early to mid-90s is now reversing in ways that people find confusing. So a show like this can really address that, this public self that has to be hardened and bitter, or at least pretend to be hardened and bitter, and this inner self that actually wants some of these abiding things that were rejected as sentimental. Something about it missed for me only because, and I I should say it's very clever. I like the leads. I mean, I think it's probably a really good show that just didn't land with me. But one of the reasons was, if you're going to point up that discrepancy, you have to make it seem true or the bitterness and toxicity seems really affected. And that was where I had an issue with it, for what it's worth. It seemed to me a real put-on for people to be that self-consciously negative about life and themselves. But again, that was just me. Yeah, it does seem a little bit cartoonish for them to be so concertedly toxic. I had a a moment of that, too. But I, I suspect that given a few more hours, I would 
descend with Dana into it and and begin to just find the charm underneath. I mean, I have to say that the cartoonishness of those characters, to me, was part of the pleasure. When Chris Gere, the guy who plays Jimmy, the man who is the worst in the couple, gets going on one of his really wound up misanthropic speeches, he kind of reminds me of Larry David in Curb Your Enthusiasm. I mean, that kind of pleasure that you get in seeing someone just be as horrible as everybody sometimes feels inside but never allows themselves to be. So psychological realism of the relationship, I think, takes takes second place to their embodiment of the, the worst in everyone. Yeah. Okay. All right. I'm gonna I'm gonna watch a little more. Uh, I'll give it a second chance too. Um, the show is "You're the Worst." It's on FXX. We seem to the panel seems split on its virtues. So why don't you uh, come cast the deciding vote at Facebook.com/slash/CultureFest? All right. Moving on. For nine years, the comedian Stephen Colbert unrelentingly played an alter ego on TV, an overbearing narcissistic gas bag in the Hannity or O'Reilly mold. Now, of course, he has broken character, taken over The Late Show, and is showing us the person I think we knew was there all along. I'm curious to talk to you guys about this. A funny, America-loving song and dance man with a deep Catholic faith. That he is a sweetheart is no surprise, but can he carry a show? Not just carry a show, but carry on a tradition as nothing but his tender Stephen Colbert self. I think the answer has to be yes, but we'll talk about it. Let's listen to a clip first. Then there's my ancient cursed amulet. Pretty sweet. I've also got all this beautiful stained glass behind me. I can make... Sorry, everybody. Sometimes the cursed amulet drones like that when it's not pleased with me. And um, here's the thing, and it's kind of a boring story, but in exchange for getting this show, I swore a blood oath on the amulet of Kalhoptep, the snake-headed Assyrian fire god, who you're probably more familiar with as his Neo-Hittite avatar, Iluk Heshob, unquenchable lord of the pit. Um, I can't say his full name, or he would manifest as the herald of the end times and feast on the blood of the innocent and i'm saving that for sweeps um well i thought that needed setup but i think it pretty much sets up itself that was the moment when in the very first episode when when colbert was sort of hijacked by demons and had to make this satan fueled endorsement of of hummus (laughs) thereby confirming the audience's fears that he had sold out in his move to network tv All right, but do we even need to go around the table, Julia, right? He's a secular saint, comedic saint, a Catholic saint. He's all the saints uh, in plaster in a row. I mean, we love Stephen Colbert unreservedly, and that is never going to change, right? I was thinking about this because I feel deep and abiding love and respect for Stephen Colbert, who I think has talents beyond what he's demonstrated already in his nine amazing years on The Colbert Report, and who will no doubt do great things with his show I was having trouble balancing that with my utter lack of excitement about discussing this show with you guys. Like, not not your fault, but like we talk about late night TV all the time as a form. It's so weird. And I began to think that in some ways late night television is like a public utility. Like you take it for granted. You just want to kind of turn it on and have it come out of the faucet when you need it and then you turn it off. It just exists. And then yet when you think about how miraculous it is to create that utility that serves your needs to like wire an entire fucking metropolis so that people can turn their lights on or like have aqueducts carrying fresh water from like upstate New York all the way under these huge underground tunnels. Like it's incredibly complicated mechanically to successfully deliver this very boring thing. And I like that's kind of how... <laughs> that analogy required more infrastructure up. than the entire water system of New York. I thought that was such a good metaphor. Fuck you guys. <laughs> it's like the big dig of fucking metaphors. Like we had to displace an entire urban landscape in order to lay down the basis right, for this maybe metaphor. Maybe it's a lame metaphor, but let me at least conclude it and then you guys can rebut. It's not lame. It's it's, it's a, the fucking eighth wonder of the world. Keep going. <laughs> in any event, I like no, there's no one I would rather have like digging that infrastructure for us and I am excited that I can turn on my TV and check in with him from time to time and yet to scrutinize like any one of his first six shows there were some extraordinary highlight moments on it he had a a very sincere and moving conversation with Joe Biden about grief and the loss of his son and Stephen Colbert's own young losses and whether Biden will run for president he you know managed to make a product placement part of his show the thing we most wanted to feature about his first show like he he displayed his manifold talents in exciting ways and yet like what else is there to say about another late night TV show 
That, that is how I feel. <laughs> Julia, are you comparing my beloved Stephen Colbert with oligopolies? <laughs> All right, we can abandon the we can abandon the utility metaphor. Though I was I was actually sincerely marveling at it. But Dana, this seems to me an issue with the format, not with the talent. Yeah, I mean, I, my first thought about reacting to only one week's worth of this this new Late Show is that I shouldn't say a word because when the Colbert Report first debuted nine years ago, I was a TV critic at the time, and I gave the first I don't know episode, few episodes, not a negative review, but eh, some some somewhat of a lukewarm one. Essentially, my line was something like, "Eh, you know, cute shtick, but how long can he keep it up? What can he really do with this character?" I mean, and I was proven so wrong. He went on to create sort of one of the great ongoing performance satire stunts of the 21st century. So I don't really want to judge what he's trying to do with the late night format yet. But yeah, I have to say, Julia, that it, it is almost, yeah, it's, it's so formally dictated, right, that there has to be the desk and there has to be the stand-up comic routine at the beginning and the interaction with the audience and the interaction with the band leader. And it feels so indebted still to that Johnny Carson, Jack Parr, who knows how old it is, format that um, that that even the turning of the format on its head seems like that it's already been done for decades, really, since since Letterman, at least. Yeah, Dana, I mean, you have just put in my mind exactly what the irony here is, which is that here you have a guy who brilliantly performed within a kind of formal straitjacket of a kind or a self-imposed restraint within which he did form boundary-breaking, boundary-shattering work as a satirist only to liberate himself from the persona and then put himself in, in some ways, kind of one of the staler genres going, which is the late night desk bound with a mic, you know, variety show. Julia, inevitably, he'll be great, if not the best at it. And it it's just going to be interesting to see whether that will help him transcend this new set of self-imposed uh, restraints. Yeah, I mean, in some ways, this is just a new set of constraints, right? Like if the Comedy Central show was half hour be this fake guy this is like okay here's the here's one of the sonnets of television here's one of the forms of television it's the sonnet the sestina like whatever it's just okay there's going to be a desk there's going to be a band like make your brilliance within those constraints and so new metaphor alert <laughs> I'm going to have like five more before this segment's over, you guys. A utility delivering sonnets. <laughs> They've both been so good. I swear to God, this is only the voice of jealousy. Go on. Uh, but, you know, so he's, he's, it's like, okay, so watching the first five shows, you're like watching him write his first five sonnets, like, and they're not going to be the best ones he ever writes. And part of what's amazing is like seeing the iteration and seeing how they vary. And, you know, he's already doing a couple things that I don't think most of his competitors can do. I think the depth and sincerity of that interview with Biden bodes well and that there's a, a humanity and a sincerity that is not treacly because of how smart and devilish and impish he is the rest of the time that works really well coming from Colbert and that is something I think people continually want in in regular small doses from late night TV. The other thing that he's brought over from the Comedy Central universe, and I'm interested to see whether this endures and flourishes or whether it constricts, is he's bringing sustained argument. I mean, Letterman didn't do this. Leno didn't do this. Conan didn't do this. The notion of taking a bit of a monologue a sustained set piece. He's now done this a few times. He did it with a bunch of Trump jokes on opening night, kind of. He did it in an analysis of Hillary and her mechanized plan to advance authenticity in an extended bit on Friday night. I mean, he takes several minutes to develop a critique of a public figure, spool out some ideas, tell jokes within the context of a small argument. And this is something we're quite used to seeing on Comedy Central. Obviously, this is you know, what Stewart did night after night. And, and John Oliver's doing it now on HBO. And John Oliver. But the kind of late night comedy long form is its own formal innovation. And he seems to be bringing that to the main stage. You're right, of course, that John Oliver has been doing something similar on HBO. But to see that behind, you know, that big square desk felt interesting. I was like, this is smarter than this usually is. Like, mm -hmm. is that going to yeah. fly? <laughs> I agree. And that's why in spite of all the, the formal restraints, and and I kind of share, Julia, your your faint sense of disappointment and tedium, not at Colbert's handling of the show, but at the show itself and the existence of the late night show in that format. In spite of all that, I, I, I think that his boundless energy and creativity and his very persuasive excitement about the, the fact that he is now hosting the late show on CBS bodes well for the idea that this show will go to unexpected places somehow, somewhere, someday. You know, I, the one thing I will say is, I, and I'm very curious about, is to what extent the 
salamiing up of these late night shows into YouTube uh, friendly video snippets is a business model and whether you can substitute for I mean because the one thing that's not coming back is a new generation of young people sitting down for an hour to 90 minutes every night to watch the entire variety show right that that seems to me that's just absolutely the going the way of the dodo bird it's not it's not coming back so just just out of curiosity like can you monetize virality the way you used to be able to monetize hostage viewing that seems to me as big a question facing Colbert and the format as anything to do with his talent, which is immeasurable, and um, and the show, which is kind of a juggernaut, right? I don't know. I mean, I think that that everyday audience is contracting now that there's another way to get the kind of drive-by highlights. But I think they still exist. Somebody has to watch the show and figure out what those kernels are that should go viral. There, there are those core fans who then find the best stuff and spread it to the winds. So, you know, and those audiences are contracting across all of these shows. So I think the question for him is not, can he restore the audience of two decades ago, but can he, you know, get a big share of... Yeah, no, no, no. That wasn't what I was saying. I was just saying, I mean, it would be interesting to know at its height what what kind of money Carson brought into NBC and whether you can substitute for that just purely as an economic question with viral video uh, and and with a audience that's distributed among four or five Carson Mankes, uh and some of and I'm a perfect example of someone who just simply does not DVR the show and watch it even even in pieces. I just go online and watch what's viral. You know how how am I monetized? I mean, but anyway. Um, well, one one thing to note there about this transition from Letterman to Colbert is that Letterman's Worldwide Pants was a part owner of uh, his iteration of the show, and CBS is the sole owner of this new incarnation. So, from what I've read, that changes the economics quite considerably and in CBS's favor. So that seems like a positive development in some ways from my perspective, because if the economics are good for them, then hopefully they'll give Colbert many many years to. Mm-hmm. figure out all of the wonderful things he can do within this new set of constraints. They're also desperate, of course, for him to bring the audience over from Comedy Central because CBS's audience, the audience for these late night shows, is aging out. And presuming that there are people that will no longer watch because Letterman's not hosting anymore, maybe some of those Comedy Central kids, at least kids as they're perceived by the aging CBS audience, will flock over to late night. Mm. All right. Well, um, it's the it's the late show, of course. It stars Stephen Colbert. Very curious to hear what people think about a new wine in an old cask. Um Come tell us at facebook.com slash culturefest. You know what we should maybe do sometime, you guys? is like we're always talking about these shows in their first weeks. We'll probably do it again when Trevor Noah starts in a few weeks because, like, we're not going to miss out on Trevor Noah. But maybe we should just pick some, like, random Thursday in February and watch them all. Like, watch all of the late night shows and do a segment that's just about that. Like, when they're all in a groove and try and, like, make sense of the whole landscape. Right, just like a cross-section from the whole tree on a random night. Mark Harris and Grantland had a wonderful write-up of the new Colbert-hosted Late Show, and one of the things he mentioned is that precisely what you just said, Julie, that the best way to judge the show is not by some nervous, hyped-up first week, but to just check in on some random Wednesday night when no interesting movies are opening and he has a B-grade starlet on for a guest and see what mm-hmm. he does with the show in that situation. Yeah, yeah, these are shoes that are not uh, metaphor alert, meant to be worn new. Um, I totally agree. That's the way to do it. All right. Before any more, before we come up with any more metaphors, well, if you guys like that idea, let us know, listeners. Turn off the tap. Let the sonnet stop. It was only my totally affected, brittle, toxic outside that pretended to disdain your metaphor, Julia. It was my nougaty, warm, soft inside that also disdained it. Really. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Julia, before we proceed any further, we do have some uh, more business. Uh, what do you got? Bleep, 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 bleep. I have a news update that's targeted direct for Dana. <laughs> oh, my God. Yes, yes. It's so good. Yes. Do it again. <laughs> Teletype machine. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. Um, I wanted to let Dana know personally and publicly that an endorsement of yours has been absorbed into the Slateborg, the potent galaxy of Panoply. Karina Longworth's wonderful podcast, You Must Remember This, which you've endorsed on this show, is Yay! now a Panoply show. That is so great. It's belonged on Panoply for so long, not to downgrade the former podcast host that it was on, but you must remember this is so slaty. I feel like people who enjoy culture and movies and history and our show will have to love You Must Remember This. It's such a good podcast. 
Yeah, I'm so excited about this. I think it's going to be so great. Have you listened? Either of you listened to the uh, the Manson series that no, Karina's been doing? Recently? I have not heard. That I think one. it's wrapped up now. I'm I'm always listening to her out of order based on you know what I've seen, what I'm thinking about. But all of her her shows are worth listening to. But she recently did this long, I think it's maybe ten or twelve part series on Charles Manson and the Manson family. Not just the details of the murder, which I feel like we obsessively and gruesomely revisit every few years, but Manson's background, which I knew nothing about. She must have read lots of biographies of him and sort of watched everything she could get her hands on online. But she does this really thorough breakdown of who Charles Manson was, what his family life was, how he came to live in California for a while in the house of Dennis Wilson, the beach boy, how he amassed all these female followers who at first were just sort of his harem and then later became, of course, his cult and the executors of his crazy will. Anyway, it's just it's a completely different glimpse of Manson that I had seen. And also this very grim, Steve, actually kind of Joan Didion-esque panorama of sick Southern California in the 1960s. Oh, wow. God, yeah, no, that is Didion-esque. All right, news news flash over. We can return to our normal programming, Steve. Mm. Thank you, Julia. All right, well, the original Luddites were English workers who broke or attempted to break the new power-driven looms of the textile factories. This was a protest against the obsolescence of their own cottage labor and against the cheapness and ugliness, perceived cheapness and ugliness, of factory-manufactured goods. But what is a Luddite today? It's an epithet, clearly. I suppose it can refer to anyone who doesn't believe the iPhone will save all of humanity. But David Auerbach has a somewhat different definition in his essay for Slate. He comes up, Julia, with, I think, quite a provocative way of looking at it. It's not just someone who uh, looks like uh, Grandpa Simpson at a uh, a screen-based device and and treats it as uh, having fallen from the sky. Uh, Auerbach says, quote, technology doesn't dehumanize us. It's the knowledge behind it that does. Fighting the machine, then, is fighting a vision of the future in which the human is the machine. In other words, it's not befuddlement at, a, at machines or anxiety about uh, how they're going to supplant us. It's the insistence that we ourselves are not machine-like and should never be reduced to being machine-like. What did you make of this definition? Well, you know, I feel like, Steve, you and I have a recurring uh, segment on the show, which is like Steve and Julia battle past versus future fisticuffs. Woo! You know, like you you are our house Luddite and I am our house technophile. And when we talk about new technology, you explain how it will ruin everything and I explain how it will solve everything. And Dana is like reasonable and wise and she her eyes glimmer with knowledge and she helps us sort it all out. I hold a pair of scales in between you. Exactly. Uh, and both of us play up our ends of the scale a bit. But I think David, who, you know, has worked as a technologist, understands code, has worked at Google and Microsoft, and probably in general falls more towards the technophilic end of the spectrum, simply in his familiarity with an excitement around technology. I think what he's doing in this essay is noting that even people who don't conceive of ourselves as Luddites maybe should, and there's maybe some value to a modern definition of Ludditism that attempts to fight for human qualities as humans are becoming more machine-like. And um, I found that that gave me pause. That gave me pause about my technophilia, my overinflated carapace of technophilia. I don't know. Did, I mean, Steve, did it reinforce your overinflated carapace of technophobia? Mm-hmm. Um, I, I suppose it did. Um, I don't think of myself as a technophobe, Julia. It may shock you to hear that. Um, it seems to me that there are two related kinds of naivete when it comes to technology. I think the first is what's meant when Luddism or or being a Luddite is wielded as an insult, which is there's a fantasy about, the, and Auerbach gets into this quite perceptively in his piece, that there's a fantasy about the past as somehow unfallen and more pure and more organic and more integrated into nature or human nature or what's holy within us. And this is a demonstrably false view of the past. But there's a second related one, and I think an intelligent Luddite is the person who points this out, which is that you know there are certain human constants and that... Um, uh, technology isn't going to elevate us beyond them. And, you know, we live embedded within them regardless of how fancy or how, you know, instrumentally ma- miraculous the machines that we build for ourselves are. And we're never going to be lifted out of them. And so futurism, you know, nostalgia for the past is preposterous, but it's no less preposterous than techno-futurism, which imagines a technology really converting us into a wholly new kind of being. Technology is purely instrumental. Uh, it's done wonderful things, but instrumentality does absolutely nothing to exhaust uh, the, the actual dimensions of humanity. 
that's where I think I come out. But Yeah, upon reading this, my main reaction was I very much hope that David Auerbach and other people, too, are writing whole books about this question and related questions, because I think it goes way beyond, are you a Luddite or are you not a Luddite? You know, is a, is a modern-day Luddite like the historical progressivist Luddites are different? It just seems like these are the questions that humanity is grappling with right now at this moment in history, right? Is the question, Steve, as you say, is about the future of utopia. Are we giving up on progressivist utopias that look into the future? Has utopia become something that we only look backwards and see in the past now? I mean, this isn't only a question also of old people, of Grandpa Simpson staring in in befuddlement at at computers. I think in kind of the millennial movements back to nature and everybody working on farms and, you know, whatever, having kind of artisanal cow milk in their coffee, there's there's kind of a, a longing for the past and for an agrarian wholeness of the past. And all of that stuff just seems to be pressing really hard on the conscience of humanity right now, trying to decide what is our relationship to machines, what is what are machines' relationships to our bodies. You know, we're wearing our Fitbits and they're counting our steps and we sort of are becoming machines willy-nilly, right? Whether we whether we like it or not, with medicine and other technological invasions of the body. Right. But I mean to me the question is really existential. Like we're inherently constrained creatures and neither the past nor the future could have or will alleviate that set of inherent constraints. And those inherent constraints, to the extent that they're engaged with philosophically and poetically, are simply called humanism. And it's equally anti-human to imagine a purely instrumental device lifting us out of the facts of birth, maturity, decay, death, love, sex. I mean, all of these things are, are and have been human constants. They have massively divergent cultural expressions, and technology certainly will alter them in some way, but the message and the medium are separate. And uh, in the middle of it is still, you know, a, a creature of loneliness and longing and all the, all the, all the sort of soft, unquantifiable things that we are. And I think to be massively offended by a certain form of nostalgia and deride it by calling it Luddism or, or being a Luddite at the same time to claim that one day we're going to upload our consciousness to a machine and become immortal uh, at the same time countenancing that utterly ridiculous thought strikes me as a kind of uh, derangement. But it seems like it's a false choice to me because most people I know don't live at either end of that spectrum. They're not Ray Kurzweil's going around preaching about the glorious singularity, nor are they Grandpa Simpson, you know, crossing <laughs> like his eyes. It's the spectrum. I, I understand <laughs> that, but I understand that, but 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 Grandpa Simpson is a common cultural punchline, and oh, Ray, but Kurzweil so is Ray Kurzweil is. Well, I guess so, but there's an entire cottage industry of nonfiction books that make related claims. I mean, Kurzweil is at the absolute extreme of it, but you cannot tell me that the general drift of the culture is in the direction of Kurzweil and against Grandpa Simpson and Steve Metcalf. I know it is. Well, I mean, there are moronic zealots in both directions, and there may be a few more in the Kurzweil direction. What are you calling me, Julia Turner? (laughs) (laughs) You're not. You're not. But, like, further further into one direction than you are moronic zealots, and there's moronic zealots who think they were just waiting for the singularity. You know, I mean, the thing that bothers me about all of this, and this is, like, maybe it's just boring pragmatism, but it's, like, it's one of the reasons I love talking about technology on this show with you guys, because technology inevitably changes culture and changes human nature and human interaction in all kinds of fascinating ways that are fun to suss out and parse. And what I resist is any cast of mind that draws like qualitative assumptions about the value and direction of that change before experiencing and experimenting with the technology. So if you assume that Snapchat is like ruining life and turning teens into sex bot, like if, if without trying it or understanding it or watching it or tracking it, you assume that it's ruining human interaction, maybe that, that that's what I think of as Luddatism is sort of assuming the worst of technology without actually observing and understanding it and then assuming that it's the best and it will foster a new kind of human – nobody makes that claim for Snapchat, but whatever. That's whatever technology is going to – you know, that the Fitbit is going to make us all a new, healthier, super race that never has heart attacks or whatever. That's dumb too. I mean, the other thing that I think is striking about the way we think about technology now because there is an entire thing called – the tech sector, like technology is both an abstract noun for any technical innovation and very specifically means like cool things we're doing with computers right now. Um, but technologies have been advancing for millennia, you know, like technologies have been changing the way humankind exist and the way we interact for, for ages. And so yeah. I, I love observing and discussing it 
I resist people who make assumptions about whether new things will change us for better or for worse. Probably all things will change us in both directions. And Yeah, no, and that's utterly sensible. And it should be pointed out that the printing press is a technology. And I'm sure that there was a moment when some, you know, supposedly sacred form of hu- human intimacy was going to go down the swirl down the freaking toilet because we were going to have mass-produced oh, literature. lost the beauty of the actual human touch on the page, you know? Like, there were all kinds of preachers saying things like that yeah, in the of early course. days all, of printing. And, and there always will be. But all I want to point out is that, first of all, there's a huge economic engine in America right now emanates out of Silicon Valley in which a lot of people are techno-futurists. They see technology as something more than purely instrumental. They see it as the actual substance and heart of a culture in and of itself. And because they make a ton of money and they do enable the rest of us, they get away with believing that. And there are, within universities, super well-funded AI departments because they will produce technologies that are enormously useful that utilize artificial intelligence. But those departments also have a philosophical dimension. And there's a ton of literature on this that's extremely well-funded on um, how the human brain is essentially a computer and how a computer will one day achieve consciousness. Those are mainstream ideas in academia right now. I happen to disagree with, with them, and that puts me against the tide, believe me. So it's not like kind of, it's nice to be magnanimous and say on the one hand and on the other hand, we all kind of believe that. I just want to point out that that's that's the grain against which someone who has an even reasonable set of expectations vis-a-vis technology has to you know, push against. That's why I think we need other categories besides Luddite and whatever we're positing as the reverse of Luddite, the techno-utopian or something like that. I mean, it just it just seems to me like neither of those two categories, they're both in a way finger-pointing um, frameworks invented by the opposite <laughs> side to caricature an, a, an argument. They're not really interrogating the way ordinary people who are kind of overwhelmed and confused and tempted and delighted and all kinds of different reactions to technology, how they are dealing with it. I mean, to me, getting a bit of a historical perspective on what Ludditism was in the past and what it may be in the future is, is, is a good starting ground, but it doesn't really ask the question, what is our relationship to technology now as we wake up in the morning, kind of being um, interrogated and crushed by it every day? Well, and the thing that always strikes me is how incremental it is, right? So to take just one example, I've started dictating emails and texts into my phone. And using Google Voice? No, using Siri. And like when the iPhone came out and there was no keyboard, everyone complained. And I'm sure it's because someone at Apple figured like, well, we're going to figure out this dictation technology soon enough. And now it is much faster to talk to my phone and it gets it right almost all the time. And yet I feel like I only do it in private. Like or, like, I don't do it walking down the street. Or it seems like it would be weird to do it in front of someone. It feels very Joaquin Phoenix in her, right, to walk down the street deeply in, engrossed in conversation with yourself. Yeah, but so that's just, like, a change. Like, now when I have an email to send on my phone and I have to type it, but I feel like I'm in a place where it would be weird to say it out loud, there's, like, a friction point because I'm like, oh, typing this is going to be so annoying and hard. Like, this is very minor technological change. It's kind of magical. And it sort of changes the manner of my writing, when I communicate, with whom. There's a whole set of social manners and mores around, like whether it's weird and crazy to do that. It's like the conversation we all had, a, you know, 10 years ago when people would walk down the street talking to themselves. And that was like a thing for eight months where I was like, oh, those crazy people are like talking to themselves when they walk down the street. They look, you know, with their Bluetooth headsets, they look like weirdos. And now they just sort of need, you would never observe on it before. But to me, it's much more interesting to take some technological shift like that and observe how incremental it is and how it kind of creeps into your life. And I'm sure in five years, I'll like never type again. Maybe 10, maybe three. I don't know. Um, and then humans' fingers will evolve away and they'll just have voices and little nubs at the end of their arms. <laughs> <laughs> that's, eight, that's the 18 to 20 month timeline, I think. <laughs> I mean, I know for me, a, a moment when something you might call Ludditism, but it doesn't feel that way at all from the inside, comes into my life every week is that I have my tech Sabbath. You know, I have like my day on the weekend that I try to not go online or use the internet at all. It doesn't always work. Sometimes I try to do it Saturday and I don't make it. So then I try to do it Sunday. There's one more day left in the weekend to try. And I'm not quite sure what it accomplishes. It's not a hatred of technology that inspires that. It's more it's more missing a different kind of space that I feel like used to exist in my head before there were little pocket computers that we carried around all the time and talked into and they talked to us. And I feel like slowing down in that way for whatever reason is kind of important to me. So I try to do it. But the idea of going around and imposing it as a rule because technology is bad and we must fight it off at all costs also seems anti-intuitive. 
Right, but that but there is a loss. I mean, the thing that registers is that for you there is a loss in the same way that there are gains and it's a it's a genuine shift in society and you can mourn the things that are losses and you know, admire the things that are gains and feel sad and and grave about the passing of human time without kind of hysterically pointing in one direction or the other. I'm sorry, I've I'm so reasonable about this. It's just boring. I'm just going to go in the corner and like <laughs> knock my head against the wall. This is not the spirit in which the Luddites lashed themselves to the machines of so-called progress, but um, that's not your role on the show to embody that, I guess. Yeah, I guess my biggest takeaway about the historical Luddites was just that we're really misusing the term the way we've appropriated it in the modern age, because the Luddites, if I understood right, Steve, were progressivists of their time, right? They were labor activists. They were protesting technology because they saw a better future for humans that didn't industrialize labor in the way that technology was doing at the time. And now, I guess a Luddite has come to mean sort of the opposite. It's it's a conservative. It's someone who stands at the word history and yells stop. You know, it's somebody mm-hmm. who doesn't want to envision a future, but just wants to go back to the past. I don't know. The original Luddites, although they were progressive politically, were fundamentally rejecting technology was a, that was against their own interests. But I mean, that, mm-hmm. that technology did go on to enable many good and bad things. But it just seems like they weren't they weren't rejecting it in the name of some sort of idealized past, but rather in the name of hanging on to their own ability to build a future. Right. Mm. Right. There was like a primal economic motive rather than a vague sense that like you feel a little bit more distant from your friends or whatever. <laughs> well, it certainly wasn't that. That's for sure. Yeah. Anyway, to be discussed further and on an ongoing basis. It's okay to be a Luddite is the name of the essay by David Auerbach on Slate. Its deck is mocking people who fear technology's dehumanizing creep is easy. Here's why they have a point. Check it out on Slate. And this is one of those topics that leads to opinionated blather. You've heard ours. Uh, show us yours. Come to Facebook.com slash CultureFest and tell us what you think about technology in the future and the past. <laughs> Was that derisive? No, I liked it. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah. I mean, it is funny. Come to Facebook.com and tell us that you're a Luddite. But anyway, <laughs> moving on. Bring your cuneiform stylus. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Well, now is the moment in our podcast where we endorse what do you have day na na na. This week I'm going to endorse a movie soundtrack that I absolutely love and that I hadn't thought about in many years, but it has just been coming to the fore again in my life for various reasons. It's the soundtrack to the Vendors movie Until the End of the World, which was this 1991 sort of epic sci-fi visionary strangeness that Vin Vendors made that at the time did not really impress me as a movie, although I would like to see it again with with all these years of distance. A little clip from Until the End of the World popped up in the Alex Gibney documentary about Steve Jobs that came out recently. A big Vin Vendors retrospective is showing at IFC. For various reasons, people are thinking and talking and tweeting about Vin Vendors Until the End of the World. And I just wanted to say, shelving my opinion of the movie for the moment, that the soundtrack to this movie is incredible. And for years after seeing the movie, I would put this soundtrack on and listen to it. And I've recently started again. As far as I know, listeners can write in and tell me if I'm wrong, but I think all of these great songs on this soundtrack were commissioned by Vin Vendors for the movie and never appeared anywhere else on any of these artists' records. And uh, and they include an original song by Elvis Costello, an original song by Nick Cave, an original song by U2, by Nina Cherry, by Depeche Mode. Did I say Depeche Mode? They're fantastic, fantastic songs, all with this very sort of gloomy, very Nick Cave-ish kind of vibe, which the movie has as well. Talk about a, a dystopia, kind of a futuristic dystopia. So I'm curious if uh, people liked the movie till the end of the world and uh, if they love the soundtrack. And if they don't, I suggest that they go and buy it on iTunes. Mm, excellent. Um, Julia, what do you have? Well, in keeping with our uh, technology conversation, the thing I have to endorse today is a Tumblr. I don't know if I've ever endorsed a Tumblr before. I think I probably have, actually. But this is one that was flagged by Slate copy editor Miriam Cruel on Lexicon Valley, our language blog. And it is called Dictionary Stories. And it contains very, 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 very short stories that are composed entirely of the definition sentences from the dictionary. So here's a very brief excerpt of one called Hunter. He perched on the edge of the bed, a study in confusion and misery, a study of a man devoured by awareness of his own mediocrity. The place was dreadfully untidy. Tattered notebooks filled with illegible hieroglyphics, the evolution of animal life, the mysteries of analytical psychology, Victorian architecture... Etc. Wait, I I don't understand how that came from dictionary definitions. None of those sentences sound like they could be in a dictionary. Not definitions. 
the the use cases. Ah, the sample sentences. The sample right. sentences. So this person has combed all of the sample sentences in the dictionary and then combined them into little six to ten sentence stories. And they're just delightful. And I love that because the sample sentences in dictionaries are wonderful little pieces of found art, as are the beautiful little sketch illos in some old dictionaries. I love the illustrations that accompany certain definitions. And I find the notion delightful and the individual stories delightful. So dictionary stories on Tumblr. Hmm. Cool. Okay, so I'm going to throw out some um, Luddite classics here. There's, of course, the recent British TV series that we all reveled in called Black Mirror. That's quite good. It seems to me it doesn't have a Luddite or anti-Luddite take on technology. It has a scorchingly apt and perceptive one. The other would be the original Mary Shelley Frankenstein. I mean, to the extent that anyone thinks of Frankenstein through the lens of how Hollywood is treated, that myth, um, they should get the quickly to the original, the Mary Shelley original. It's one of the greatest novels ever written by far, and it is um, a, a cautionary tale against uh, the overreach of science that is really the best one ever written still. But then mostly what I want to uh, endorse is uh, the, the, really the only reason Luddite is in the modern vocabulary at all is a uh, work of history published in the early 60s by E.P. Thompson, a new left historian. The work is The Making of the English Working Class, is uh, truly one of the great works of history ever written. He goes back to the formative years of the Industrial Revolution, and he details how the old artisanal working class was replaced and made obsolete by a new industrial working class. And as he famously said, quote, I am seeking to rescue the poor stockinger, the Luddite cropper, the quote unquote, obsolete handloom weaver, the utopian artisan, and even the deluded follower of Joanna Southcutt from the enormous condescension of posterity. I think that's a great and enduring way of looking at it. We assume too easily that history, it may be that history is in fact written by the winners, but that's different from saying that history is or should be written by the winners. This was a monumental history of and on behalf of the losers, which I would say modern industrialism has uh, produced by the tens of millions, if not billions. Anyway, it's a great work of um, English literature. Um, so one more time, it's called The Making of the English Working Class, and it's by the historian E.P. Thompson. All right, Dana, thank you so much. Thank you, Stephen. Thanks, Julia. Thanks, Steve. All right, you'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page, slate.com slash culturefest. And you can email us at culturefest at slate.com or drop us a note at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash culturefest. Our producer is Ann Hepperman. Our intern is Lindsay Albrecht. Andy Bowers is the executive producer of Slate Podcasts. The Culture Gap Fest is part of the Panoply Network. Check out our entire roster on iTunes.com slash Panoply. And our Twitter feed, as always, is at Slate Cult Fest. For Julia Turner and Dana Stevens, I'm Stephen Metcalf. Thank you so much for joining us. We'll see you soon. Cheers.